Did you ever think that it could be possible to be a woman and reach an insane CEO or high management level position in the finance world? Do you even think there is a place for women in the finance world? And is it actually working in finance something akin to what we saw in Wolf of Wall Street? Well, today we're going to find out because we're going to be talking to money expert RK and we're just going to go into it. So let's go. If you've ever felt alone, misunderstood, or like your story doesn't matter, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Pretty Sure, the podcast where we explore the fun in life's ups and downs. Join me, your host, in a mix of guests from friends to thought leaders, artists, entrepreneurs, and experts for some raw, unfiltered, and frankly, hilarious conversations. We'll chat about our struggles as millennials, the joys and pains of being single or in a relationship, life and biz lessons, and some inspiring takeaways too, because remember, no topic is ever off the table for us. Hi, I'm Sabrina, your new best friend, and every week you can expect kindness, support, and some tough love, because you'll be damn sure I'm going to be calling you out on your shit when you need it most. Pretty sure we're in for a wild ride, so saddle up and let's go! Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Pretty Sure Podcast. So today is going to be a really interesting episode, and I know I usually say this, but we're going to be talking about a word that's in everybody's mouth, sometimes dirty, no, it's not sex, we'll eventually talk about that, but today's topic is all about money. So I can guarantee that if you've grown up in the Western world or if you've grown up in Asia, wherever you are, you have probably grown up with either the mindset of money is dirty, people who are rich, they can't, you know, they're not nice people, they stole to get there, they did unthinkable things, or you're of of the mindset of, you know what, only X type of person can make money, I can never do this, I can never do that. And so here comes RK, who calls herself a millennial money muse, which by the way, I sincerely love that name. So kudos to you for thinking of that. And she's going to tell us all about her financial career, how she now runs a summit, and so many more exciting things that we're going to find out. So welcome, RK. And I'm excited to hear about your story because I haven't really heard that much. I've just heard some snippets of it. So please tell us a little bit about yourself so we can dive in. Absolutely. So first off, Sab, thank you so much for having me on your program. Like This is so cool. I'm so excited to be here with you. Uh, So to tell you a little bit about myself, I started off in banking and in finance about 13 years ago, and I I wore all these different hats, went on my own financial journey, and I've helped so many different people when it comes to, you know, buying homes, developing into leaders, you know, doing all the different things within banking and finance, and I've worn all the hats. So I started off in my career as a, like, hybrid personal banker, and then grew up Uh, into a small business banker for the state of New Hampshire. There on after, I was a a branch manager. I've done facilitation, talent development programs, project work that impacted all of Southern New England. And I've worked on, you know, with women in leadership and so on. It's one of the diversity pillars. I've been around and I've worked at uh, different tables within finance and within banking. And, you know, in that realm, as I was experiencing that, I actually went through a financial journey myself. In 2016, I had my twin babies and it was a very high risk pregnancy. And, you know, I had just gotten married a few months prior. So like I had just gotten married and then we we had this high risk pregnancy and it just kind of threw my world out of mix, right? Like, so we, we went from being like everybody else being like the Joneses, like we had our mortgage, we still had student loans, we still had some consumer debt flying around, right? And like, we were very normal. We were very normal. And what happened is after, you know, going through this, and I worked for a bank that didn't offer maternity leave. So I only had, you know, federal, federal, uh, family medical leave act leave. So there wasn't full pay. I lost part of my income. I was hospitalized for a long period of time. And then I had to wait for my kids to get out of the NICU before returning to work. And so in all of that, we accumulated even more debt than what we currently had. And so by the time like I could breathe again, by the time I could just take a step back and look at what, what everything that happened, our student loans, our cars, everything, we owed $117,000 in consumer debt. Like It was crazy. It was crazy. And 
I knew that I had these little people who I now had to take care of and who I now, you know, was responsible for. And so I needed to figure out how I was going to uh, get myself out of the situation and also, you know, build for their future in a very meaningful way. So I went on a financial journey myself. We, you know, I put so many different things into motion, changed my lifestyle altogether. And this part was hard. This is the part that I don't think people talk about. So for us, like my colleagues were driving Teslas, Mercedes, Audis, right? When I went through this journey, I sold my Acura and I was driving an old Honda Odyssey. Like this was like everything I, I, my, my worst nightmare. (laughs) Not only was I like, you know, like the, I was like the soccer mom van was like a, a disaster. It was everything I did not want it to be. So I was terrified, but I was so like, you know, just heated up. I was so passionate about changing my life that at that point I was willing to do anything. And the thing is, is that that car, my little Acura RSX, right? That car was my definition of being independent, of being like a single woman. That was the first car I ever paid off on my own, right? And so selling it was like that that moment where I said, okay, I'm ready to change everything. So I sold the car. We all took up side jobs. My husband had a side job. I had a side job. You know, there was no more shopping for extra clothes. Like it was bare bones. And in 18 months, we paid off $117,000. Sab, it was transformational. It changed our lives. And it changed my way of thinking. Because at the end of the day, I was someone who taught bankers how to be bankers. I developed Mm. a whole litany of individuals into being successful salespeople. But I myself was not using the strategies that I was teaching other people how to use. I myself was not digging to that deeper level of financial education to understand how to actually implement everything in a way that was going to be strategic to my my needs. And so when I finally made that step to change, all of a sudden, all the pieces came together. And so now we're on the journey of financial freedom. Now we're going to, you know, technically I could retire now if I wanted to, right? So like, that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to say, like, I could be done work if I chose to. And it's all because I made these steps to change my life. So that's, that's me. (laughs) And now I want to give this back to other people. Oh my God, that's amazing. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit more about how you actually got through debt and what you changed a little bit later. But first, I want to backtrack a bit and I want to go back to kind of like the beginning for you. So what was your initial relationship to money and success like prior to this, you know, growing up, starting college and all of those things? How like how was your relationship to money? My relationship with money stems back to my childhood and and how money has been handled generationally within my family. And so when when I was young, we would uh, go to church on Sundays. And after church, we would then go to Macy's. Then we'd shop Macy's, right? After we finished at Macy's, we'd drive across the bridge and we'd go to Filene's at the mall. And we'd go to almost every store in the mall, right? And so this was a, a habit. This was a ritual that we did every single week. This was something that became part of part of who I was. And so as I grew older, I noticed that if I was having a bad day or if something, you know, kind of was hard or, you know, was a a pain point of the day, I would find myself going to the mall or going shopping. And like, I would get this euphoric high of, I got a good deal. Like I got these pair of shoes on sale. I got this jacket on sale. Like, this is amazing. Right. I got a great deal. You know, looking in my closet, I'd have clothes I didn't even wear clothes that still had tags on them. You know, I would just have stuff because stuff made me feel good. It made me feel secure. Mm -hmm. And so coming from a childhood that was not secure and coming from to this country as an immigrant and coming, you know, here as the bottom rang when it came to financial security, having stuff made us feel good. Having stuff made me feel good. And so I brought that to my, to everything else in my life. So I found that, you know, when I had my first apartment, I had tons of stuff. (laughs) I just, I just would, would buy stuff. I saw something on deal. I was like, this looks great. Let me, let me buy this. This looks good. I'm going to get this. It just continued. And there was always this desire to have things and look outwardly affluent to have things and look like I was living a certain lifestyle. Right. And whether, whether the salary I made 
made sense for that lifestyle or not. That was what felt like needed to happen. It was like to prove my value and to prove my worth, I had to show that that's what I was. This also comes in, and I know we're going to talk about this more, but I think this also comes into when I first got into banking, I was very young. Okay. I I got into banking initially as a, a micro lender when I was 19 years old. And then I got into my first giant bank, the was number one bank in the country at the time when I was 21. And so I was young and I always looked young. Right? And like, I, I don't think I've embraced this millennial title until very recently, right? Because it was always a bad word. I actually went for years and never told anyone how old I was. And in fact, if you ask the people wow. that I most recently have worked with, they don't know how old I am because it was a stigma. It was like, it was like, um, you know, it was a stigma of being young and being a millennial was like a bad word. And when I, when I worked in, in, in this realm and as I, I grew up in this realm and I was, you know, a small business banker and I was a bank manager, you know, and I was 24 as a bank manager, like I was super young, <laughs> I was super young. And it wasn't that I wasn't qualified. I absolutely was qualified. I worked my ass off. Like I, I deserved every role I received. I deserved every role that I got into, but there was a need to outwardly look different than than what my true self was. And I never felt fully authentic at what I did because I had to have this facade up, this facade that I was older, this facade that, you know, I had more than what I was showing. There was always a need to have a facade. I totally get that. And it's interesting that you mentioned your career because that's actually my next question. So how did you come about the finance industry? How did you start and what has your career been like? That's such an interesting question, Sub, because when I first got into banking, when I first got into finance, what what pushed me there was I was like 19 years old, right? And I was trying to figure out what my life was. I had just left college it was time like for me to kind of figure out and figure out how I was going to pay for the rest of my education, how I was going to, you know, go about life and like what that looked like. And I didn't have much stability. I was kind of like floating around, right. Trying to figure out what was going to help ground me. And so I thought about like, what is it that I want to be? What is it that I want to be? Mm -hmm. And so when I thought about that, what came to mind was like, I know that I want to work in a place where I feel like I can provide value I want to work in a place where I can help people and I want to go to work and I want to look professional. Right. So going back to the, the idea of like, look how you look and how you present yourself. But that was, those were the, those are my three qualifiers. Like I wanted to, I wanted to achieve those three things. And so when I thought about like what that may look like and what, what industry could you could work in that would kind of fulfill those needs, banking is what came to mind. I was like, what a great place. So I got into banking, you know, I, I worked my, my way up and, and, you know, I shared like as a, as a young person kind of working your way up, you just, I just felt the need. And I've always had this drive of just like always being number one. Like I, I always needed to be, to prove something. (laughs) So kind of coming in, in the middle or, or whatever was never an option for me. And that was one of the reasons why I so quickly rose up in my career was simply because I always had something to prove to somebody because there was always someone out there saying like, you're not capable. You can't do this. You're not worthy. You know, whatever it may be, there were always those dissenting voices. And sometimes being honest, those dissenting voices were even within me. Like sometimes it was even myself saying like, you know, you kind of have this, um, what's the word? You kind of have this feeling of like imposter syndrome where you're like, am I really in this place? Like, am I really managing seven people that are like one of them who's double my age? Like, is this, is this real life? Like, (laughs) how did I get here? (laughs) So you get this imposter syndrome and particularly where you're not being your authentic self. Like it was just, it was just a, it was just a whole mix. So that was my entry point to banking. That's how I got into banking and how I kind of walked in. And, and like, then once I was in, like, I lit that place on fire. Like I did not let anything get in my way. Nothing. Like if you put a goal out there, I was going to crush whatever that goal was. I remember this, there was a time where, um, you know, the bank was, was putting a big focus on like doing outside sales. So, you know, they didn't, they wanted to have people going out into the community 
and trying to, you know, like uh, educate people on bank products outside of the bank. And like, I remember the people I worked with at the time that were like customer service or personal bankers, right? They had no desire to go out. <laughs> they both were like, we are not going out of this building. I don't care what they're saying. We're not doing it. Right. And to me, when I heard that, I was like, wait a minute, you're going to pay me to leave. <laughs> you're going to pay me to go out and I get to drive around. And I get to find business. Like this sounds incredible. So, um, so I did, I like started going out. I started making calls. I started trying to, you know, find business and like, and I was successful. And then all of a sudden, like, cause I just kept pushing all of a sudden I'm holding conference calls for like new England and telling people about, you know, here's how you do it. Here's how you find clients. Here's how you, you know, how you do your presentation. Here's how you, how you display it. Like I was making contracts with like CVS for like <laughs> the East coast. It was crazy. It was honestly crazy. And I was like 22 years old. So it was just, that was just me. That was just my drive, right? Like to prove something. So you kind of came up with the idea of going into the finance world out of nowhere. Did you at any point growing up even like finance or numbers or was it just like, okay, I guess I'm now going to go into finance because this is going to give me the life that I want? Seb, I wish I could tell you I was a better planner as a young person. I was not. <laughs> I was not. Okay. When I was, when I was deciding what my career was going to be, cause like we, we put so much pressure on 18 and 17 and 16 year olds, an unordinate amount of pressure we put on these young people. Like we need to stop just putting it out there. Anyone listening, do not put pressure on your kids. When I was that age, when I was thinking, so I graduated from high school when I was 17 years old. Right. And when I was that age, I had no clue what the future was going to be. I, I said that I wanted to be a plastic surgeon. Do you know why I wanted to be a plastic surgeon, Seb? I love the show Nip Tuck. I thought it was fantastic. And I was like, this could be my life. <laughs> like, this sounds great. Like, this oh, makes sense. Let's, let's be a plastic surgeon. So I went to school initially for biology. I, I like, I went with this. I, I literally went with this. I was like, this makes sense. I'm going to do this, right? I did take some science classes in school. I got into a really good school. So it is there. But... <laughs> but I suck at biology. Like I'm not good at, at that, right? I, that's not my forte. And it was never going to be my forte. Being a plastic surgeon is so much more than like Sean McNamara shows on Nip Tuck, right? Like it's not like that. It's not real life. They don't put the music on. They just go to work, right? <laughs> so um, so at the end of the day, like I, I, I wish I were a better planner. I wish I was someone who like had a better strategy, now, even as I, as I work with clients, and as I talk to people, those are some of the things that I talk about. It's like, how do you teach your young people how to build a strategy? Right. Because so often we, when I, I had a summit last month that you, that can still be watched, you can live stream on YouTube. Right. And I, I had the summit. And one of the things that we talked about was again, the pressure we put on young people when it comes to decision-making, but also we tell these kids that, you know, you need to go to school for certain degrees because you need to make money. Like you need to graduate from school, get a $70,000 a year job and, and like life is going to be good for you. Right. But we don't actually give them any tools or resources or any, any help when it comes to building a strategic mind or building a strategic mindset. We just kind of unleash them. And, and then we're like, take some loans and figure it out. Right. And that like more than not, we're not as parents, we're not giving our kids those, those resources when it comes to here's how you actually build a plan. So you want to be, you know, if your goal is to be a painter or if your goal is to um, do visual art, like how are you going to make money from that? Let's build a strategy. Let's get you in the mindset that let's build a strategy on how you actually monetize it, fulfill your dreams. But and sometimes what someone may see is as they build their strategy out, they may say, you know what, this isn't the right thing for me. I'm not actually, when I get into the fine details of everything I'm going to have to do here, I don't love it. Or they may say, no, this invigorates me even more. This is my passion. I want to do it. That's where we have to get people. We have to stop with the, you know, you're just going to go to school and, and make a salary. No, you have to start. We have to start pushing people for strategic thinking. And once we do that, then can you imagine where we'll even be as a society if we can get people to the point of, of, of everyone like really thinking with strategic goals and with strategic planning and they're actually living out their dreams? 
Yeah, amazing. it would be amazing. And it's funny that you say that because actually I was doing another interview this morning and I was talking exactly about that with my guest. She's like in the dance industry and she did all that. And she was actually telling me and the girl before that as well, she was, she is a transformational coach, but she studied economics and she literally said the same exact thing. She was like, listen, if I would go back to when I was like in college or whatever, I would have not studied what I studied because I cannot tell you one thing I learned about economics. I would have left to study psychology, but I didn't know that I could be an entrepreneur back then and all of that. Same with the dancer, you know, she was like, yeah, I would have loved to know that there were more opportunities that I could have made a career out of this instead of learning it down the long road. So definitely agree with you on that. Like there is so much work to do in schools and universities because I mean, me, look at me, right? I'm a podcaster, but I'm also a podcast coach. If you would have told me in college, like you're going to be a podcast coach, I would have literally laughed in your face because I would have been like, that is not a career. Like that, that doesn't exist. I will never make money of that. That sounds like something a five-year-old made up, right? Because you're taught to think, oh, I want to be a doctor. Oh, I want to be a CEO. Oh, I want to be, I don't even know, whatever it is, a writer, but you don't think, okay, there's like a gazillion other opportunities out there, right? And they're they're teaching us to be all like, oh, that's made up. Oh, that doesn't work out. And so when you start and when you get into that, I think the biggest hurdle, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is overcoming your own mindset and overcoming the whole idea of, oh, I, I will never be able to make money with this because it's like, it's fake. It doesn't exist. Whereas if, like you mentioned, they changed the mindset since we're kids, since we're at school, we would probably have better chances and there would be less of a lack of people suffering because they can't make money in their own business and stuff like that. So fascinating what you're saying. And speaking about that, you know, tell me what's your favorite thing about finance, like the finance world? What was one thing that you loved being in it? So what I think about my my favorite thing about finance or about, about wealth building in particular is that it is accessible to virtually everybody. It is accessible to everyone, but the barrier to entry is the education, right? So I love, I love how many different ways people can make money. I love how many different ways people can accumulate wealth. I love what, what money and wealth can do for people's livelihoods, right? One of my favorite organizations, and, and I aspire to do something like this. I'm putting it onto the universe because now it's going to be on your podcast app. So I'm putting it out there. So it's going to happen. But I aspire to create an org- a nonprofit similar to Kiva Loans. If you do not know who, what Kiva Loans is, you should look them up. They don't sponsor me, but I'm still telling you that they're amazing. So you should look them up. So Kiva Loans is an organization that does micro loans via crowdsourcing. And they deliver these micro loans to uh, people that live in third world uh, countries. So people that live in impoverished nations, they help these people when it comes to their small businesses. So you may, you may give crowdsource $25, right? And someone in, let's say Haiti has a, a little grocery stand and they sell some food at lunchtime for the people that, that walk by. And that $25 can help when it comes to their infrastructure, buying new pots and pans, you know, maybe bring someone else on to work for them, whatever it may be, um, and help them expand. And so when you help these small business owners expand and you do that in a meaningful way around the world, what do you do? You lift up the poverty level, right? So you're, you're lifting people out of poverty by doing so. And so that's what wealth building can do. But when people think about oh my goodness, you know, when you're making money just means that you're selfish or, you know, you just want to, you just want to be a billionaire like Jeff Bezos or, you know, who cares about that? Like, and I push back on that, that mindset and I say, well, what would you do with it? Right? So wealth building and what I teach my, my, my clients to think about is wealth building is not just about stacking money, right? It's not just about watching your net worth grow. It's about what you actually will do with the money. So like my dream is to have something similar to Kiva Loan, where I get to travel the world, write stories about what people do from small business. I already love interviewing people from small business, Chad, like we talked about, right? Like I get to meet people all over the world, experience different cultures and help lift people out of poverty. Like sign me up, right? That's what my dream is. So then I, I, I empower you to think about what your dream is. 
And your dream may not be to have a nonprofit, but your dream may be to, you know, to, to live on a farm and to be able to have like farm animals and, and be able to ride horses. Like your dream may be to travel the world and, you know, be able to work from the beach every day. Your dream may be to, you know, like help children in your neighborhood and buy bicycles for all the kids that live in your neighborhood. Like whatever it is that your dream is, the ability to acclimate wealth helps you reach it. And it's accessible, but you have to know the way to do so. Hmm. Okay. So I know we talked about this off the air, and we're going to go deeper into what you said with your strategies and everything. But I would love to know what for you was the hardest part about being a woman in finance? This is a loaded question. (laughs) It's a loaded question. I can imagine, Um, yeah. There is absolutely a glass ceiling for women that work in finance. In women that work in banking, there is a glass ceiling and it is so hard to smash through that glass ceiling. It doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter how talented you are. It doesn't matter how much potential you have. It is hard to smash through. And as you can see, right? So if you think about where, if you if you ever go into you know your local um, financial organization, right? If you walk into your local bank, you may see a bank manager as being a woman, but that's that's virtually as high up as they go, right? There, there's it's it's like a lottery. They're on after when you think about you know for regional managers, for market presidents, and then for senior executives, CEOs, COOs, CFOs, predominantly white men across the country. So yeah. there's a glass ceiling that's there and companies across the board need to truly take a deep inward look at how they place talent because here's what happens. And this glass ceiling doesn't apply just to women. It applies to minorities as well. But here's what happens when you have this glass ceiling. When you have everybody in a room that looks like you, you lack diversity of thought. If every single person, especially if they're trying to emulate you, if every single person looks like you in a room, their life experiences more than likely are similar to what yours are. And you hire them because they feel comfortable to you, because you see yourself in them. That's the thing that needs to be broken. It's no longer acceptable to to think in that way when you get to leadership positions. You have to start diversifying. And the reason why is that it is proven Companies that hire based upon diversity and that have higher levels of diversity outperform companies that don't. So the data is there. The information's there. It's how we actually take the information and apply it. And in finance in particular, we have a long way to go, a long way to go. And some companies have said that they're going to start working on it and they're making commitments as to, you know, what happens in 2021 and 2022, 2023, so on. They're making commitments, but the actions speak louder than words. So it's really time that everyone digs in and and makes a commitment and actually develops people to be ready for these roles. Because the, the reality is, right? And I'm a millennial, Sab, you're a millennial. The reality is, is that millennials are already influencing the workforce. We are already managers. We are already low-level executives. We're already in there, right? And so in the next 10 years, we will now be the majority of the workforce. And at, at which point you don't have a choice. Like <laughs> it's, it's no longer a choice. So either we can, we can make changes now so that we can reshape what the future looks like, and enable diversity for all, or we can continue on the trajectory we're on, which you won't perform as well, right? So it's like, the answer is obvious, but the way to get there is hard. There's a long way to go for sure. And speaking of, you know, financial literacy and getting out of debt, like you mentioned, what do you think is the biggest problem that you see right now or that you saw with millennials nowadays and our money and finances? Because I know we have a very long list of money problems on financial literacy. And we honestly, like half of us don't even know what we would do with a house. Like how do you even get a mortgage? Don't even get me started about that. Specifically if you're like from other countries, but you, you know, being in finance, being a millennial yourself, what do you think is the biggest financial literacy problem out there right now? The biggest financial literacy problem is simply the lack of financial literacy. So in when, when <laughs> I, know, I know it feels like I'm just sending your question back to you, but I promise there's, there's a reason here, right? 
So when someone goes through their traditional education, and this is this is global, this isn't just the United States, even though I'm, I'm based in the US, this is across the board. Countries across the board, we, there's no financial literacy program in most countries and most in, in most schools. So people grow up with a lack of financial literacy, a lack of financial education across the board. And what happens is they learn, who do they learn from, right? They learn from their parents or learn from their grandparents. And then at the end of the day, how much did their parents get? How much did their grandparents get? Right. They may they may have had a conversation when they go into the bank once a year or twice a year. if They have a sit down conversation. But how in depth are they getting in that one hour conversation? Or perhaps they have their financial advisor who calls them. And if you're lucky, your financial advisor calls you three times a year. If you're lucky. Right. Like those are the good ones. And then they're just talking about what's happening economically right then and there and how it applies to your circumstance. So the the overall issue is that people don't know enough to make good decisions. And so like literally we're having baseline conversations of it's wonderful that you want to save, but you have X amount of debt. We need to pay off the debt. How do you do that? Right. It's wonderful that you want to buy a house, but we need to have a down payment. Let's stop thinking about trying to do something with just 3% down or three and a half percent down. Let's help you get to the point where you have a down payment. It's wonderful that you want to buy rental properties but you still owe a lot of more money on your own mortgage and a lot of debt over here. Like those are the conversations that we're trying to help. And it's pretty cool actually to have this app because I'm, I'm excited, right? So it's, it's launching soon, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to share it because it'll be out in two weeks. So hopefully by the time this airs, it'll be out. So for sure. So my company is launching a game changer product. And what it is, is it is going to be financial literacy available to you for the price of a gym membership. It's going to be accessible to everyone. You'll be able to watch videos and watch and get infographics, get details on your phone as though you're going through Netflix. So you can watch, click to the next one, watch, click to the next one. You can absorb the information as you want to. You get, you get access to me and access to my team. It is, it is groundbreaking. It's different. It's not out there. This is like and I, it's it's actually kind of crazy. So um, I'm so excited for it. I'm so pumped for it. Like, I, I can't even believe it's all coming together in the way it's coming together. It's going to be really special. But something like this gives people the ability to learn about how money works, make, make uh, applications to their life, and be able to ask questions in a format that you know, kind of breaks the, the, the barrier of silence. That's one of the things that we struggle with is we've been so ingrained. Let's talk about our salaries. Let's talk about how much money we have. We've grown up with this stigma that we can't talk about money. And because we don't talk about it, we don't understand it. And then we we can't admit that we don't understand it because we don't talk about it. So that's why this product, I think, is going to change some lives because this gives you the opportunity to learn without having to put yourself in the hot seat, without having to put yourself out there that you don't know it gives you what you need so you can make good decisions. Ooh, I'm excited to hear more about that once it's out. So you'll definitely have to give me the 411. So according to you, what's one piece of practical advice you can give someone when it comes to money and handling money or getting more of it or saving or what to do with it after you have a paycheck? The best thing that I can tell you when it comes to how to, how to manage your money or how to accumulate wealth is to have a goal. And that sounds so basic, but that is the number one way that you're going to accomplish what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And what I mean by that is that, so you start off and and we're at the beginning of the new year. So you start off January 1 and you have this conversation and say, and write down three things that you want to accomplish for the year. Use the format of SMART goals, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, time-based. Use that use that that model and create a fin- three financial goals that you're going to attain that this particular year. And then you need to go back to those goals every single week and check in with them. Look at the goals. What are you doing to work towards them? Perhaps you have debt and you're working towards paying off your debt. What are you doing to get there? Okay. And, and you need to hold yourself accountable to those goals. If you don't have the help of a coach or a community that can help kind of build you up and keep you motivated, you have to motivate yourself. You have to be so intentional and intense about this 
that's when the magic's going to happen, right? So for instance, if you're in debt and that's one of your three financial goals that you're going to do, you need to think about how you can increase your cash flow. What can you do to increase your income immediately? Is it getting uh, a side gig? Are you talented at something? Can you can you make jewelry? Can you make scarves? Can you make hats? Can you knit? Can you crochet? Can you, you know, what is it that makes you special, unique? Where can you bring your passion in and how can you monetize it? That's something to consider because, and one thing that I love about millennials is I think that we are the most creative generation. I have like out of all of them that are currently around. I feel like the creativity here, especially because we grew up we grew up with so much technology and we grew up as technology just exploded. And so because we could see all of these life changing things, we and ourselves are like, we can change the world. <laughs> like It's possible because we watch the world get changed over and over and over again. So our pro- our thought process is like, we can also change the world. So we're, we have an entrepreneurial spirit ingrained in us. We have the spirit that we want to change the world ingrained in us. And so I, I would challenge anyone whose goal it is to pay off debt to really think about how they can channel that entrepreneurial spirit and how they can apply that to what they're doing so that they can increase their cash flow and make substantial payments towards that debt and get it out of their life. Okay. <laughs> I love everything that you're saying. And that is so true. I don't think I've met, like you mentioned, just a generation that has more entrepreneurs than what we are. And I find it funny because even sometimes I myself associate millennials with like 20 year olds, but we don't realize that out there, there are millennials currently that are maybe like 40, 45 or whatever it is, because that is like, we're grown up, right? I'm going to be 30 in a couple of years. And I still think of like millennials as 20 years old or like 19. And then I'm like, no, Sabrina, those are like generation Z. Like we're, we're growing up. Like you said, we're going to be part of the workforce. Everyone's just basically basically going to be millennial. So love that you're saying all of that. And now I also love that you mentioned about getting out of debt because I know, you know, you mentioned that you got out of, I think it was like 118 or 180. What was it? 117. 180. Yeah. Crazy number. Okay. 117. So you got out of debt really quickly and a crazy amount of debt. How did you actually do it? Like spill the beans and tell us the things that you put in place or what you actually did to just overcome that so quickly. Yeah. So the, the first thing that I did and, and like, I wish it were more in depth than this. I really do. I wish that there was some secret sauce. And even on my website, I talk about it. I'm like, I wish that there was a more secret, like more secret to how to do it. It really was like, I, I did a budget and I, I now offer my budget for free. So you can go on my website and get my budget. The same one I used to pay off my debt free. So I did a budget. I held myself accountable to the budget. The big thing that happened that was hard in all of this was getting my husband on board. Right. So I was fired up. I'm like, we got babies. We have to, we have to, we have to do this. This is not going to, this is not acceptable. We change our lives. Like I was, I was in a thousand times in (laughs) once I, once I bought into the idea of eliminating it, I was in my husband on the other hand was more like, yes, yeah, it's, it's not that big a deal, is it? Like everyone has some debt and like, you know, we'll pay it off, right? And I was like, I don't think you understand. And so now I tell people this. I tell people that, you know, being in debt is like being in the middle of a hurricane and you're like in the eye of the storm, right? And when you're in the eye of the storm, like it feels okay. It feels like eerily calm. Like everyone around you is kind of in the same place and you're with the Joneses and every, and everybody's in this position. But your position is precarious. Anything could throw you out into the danger. An unexpected medical expense, an unexpected car expense. One in four Americans can't handle an expense of over $400 without having to take out some type of lending to pay for it. Like that is, and right now, can you imagine how much worse it is? Right? So Like, that's what it is. That's what it is. It's like anything can throw you into this danger, the wind, the whirling. Anything can take you out of that position of of calmness. And so I knew that there was a problem and I knew I wanted to fix it. The budget helped, but honestly, it was changing mindset. And so I had to work to change my husband's mindset and make him see, help him see, help him see, bring him on the journey of this is where we are. This is where we could be. This is what you want, right? 
And it took time. It didn't happen right away. But once he got there, oh my God, I couldn't stop him. Like I could not stop him. I got to the point where I was like, I listen, I know we're hustling, but like uh, when you go to work, your side gig, like I'm with all, all the kids, like I'm just by myself. Like, can we, can we like not do it every night? Can we like, <laughs> there's no break. There's no break <laughs> because it was just oh like, God. he was on it. And then I was on it. I was like, we're not messing around. I started selling everything. Like I was like selling everything. Our house became pretty bare, which I actually like. I, I realized I'm a hidden minimalist. Um, okay. So like I've, I've, I've kind of liked this, like not having much stuff, but I was like, we're getting rid of it all. So Facebook marketplace, all the stuff. Right. And I've gotten a new appreciation when it comes to, to stuff and like recycling and like, you know, kind of having a lower impact um, on the world. Like th- those things mean different things to me now after going through this. Mm-hmm. But, but that was, that was honestly it. And then I think that like, for me, what clicked after that, as I kind of went into my journey of, of now I want to, I want to open this business and I want to touch people in a different way. What, what touched me in all of this was I was like, paying off the debt wasn't the hard part. It was changing the mindset. That was the hard part. Like that was the hard part. It was, it was like navigating the wind, navigating the storm. That was the hard part. And, and pushing through those moments of resistance and those moments of hardship. Because we have been ingrained for so long with like, like what I, like with me, I was ingrained for so long with, we go shopping every Sunday, right? I was ingrained for so long as like, it's okay that we have credit card debt. It's okay that we have car loans. Like, it's okay that we have a lease out there. Like, these are normal things. Those were things that were ingrained in me. So it was changing the mindset that made it all happen. And that's when I realized, like, it's not, it's not about the, it's not about the budget sheet. <laughs> it's not, it's not about your strategy to pay it off. It's about where you are. Ooh, that's very deep. I love that. Speaking of, what's one thing you wish you knew when you were younger? Like one thing that you've learned throughout your entire journey that you're like, damn, if only I could have known this before, my life would probably be different. I love those things that show up on Facebook where it's like pick four words that you can send to your, your 20 year old self. And then, and then like, you know, what, what four words would you, would you send? And like, I, I like reflect on those things because I find them really interesting. And I've always said that, like, I would send back the words like Tesla, Amazon, Apple, and Google, <laughs> or like maybe skip off Google and just say invest. <laughs> And hope that I would be smart enough to realize that I should just buy stock right now. <laughs> as soon as they came <laughs> open. But seriously, I think that I, if I were to go back and, and, and look at things all over again, I think that I would just say to myself, like, just take it seriously. Okay. Cause like, I didn't take money seriously. Even though I taught people, this is the, this is the process and how you help someone take out a loan. This is the process and how you, you know, do uh, purchase a home. This is the process and how you go about building your business and, and getting business financing. Like, even though I taught people all those things, I myself didn't take my finances seriously because I had a big salary, like having a six figure salary. You just feel like this is, you're going to be fine. Like you can weather anything. And so that was the thing for me is that I needed to. I needed to take it seriously that there was, there was time, there was time to make changes earlier on. And not that like, I still have plenty of time. Like I'm, we're going to be fine. But (laughs) had I made some of these adjustments earlier, I can't, it would be incredible where I would be today financially, like incredible. And the impact I could have on people would be incredible. So I just, I just wish I took it seriously. Yeah. I totally agree with you because that, I mean, I think that happens to everyone, right? Like you think, you just don't think about things the way you think about them once you go through a hardship. And then you're like, damn, if only I knew about this before, like my life would be different. Like what the hell, right? And speaking of, I know you have a summit. I know, you know, I'm going to be a part of it. And you told me about it on our super long call that we had getting to know each other. So I would love for you to tell me a little bit about what inspired you to actually start a summit what is the whole concept and just like, tell us about your plans with that. My summit idea has kind of like spiraled into something so much bigger than what I, I could have ever imagined. So my initial thought for the summits were, you know, what a great way to bring different uh, entrepreneurs together or different industry leaders together to have a conversation about different topics and get 
get our audiences access that they may not have had previously, right? So that's where it started. It started. And I, I did my first summit in December. It was called the Money Summit. And like, it was, it was so much fun. We had, we had such a diverse conversation. We talked about the student loan crisis. We talked about, you know, the, the gender wage gap. We talked about the glass ceiling. We talked about entry to the workforce and how to navigate some of the, the, the opportunities that come and roadblocks or barriers that come throughout your, your journey in the workforce, in particular, getting into corporate and so on. And like it was, and then we talked about entrepreneurship, of course, because we, we can't not talk about entrepreneurship because we're all entrepreneurs. <laughs> um, but the next summit that I'm having, which is actually going to air um, February 20th and Sab, uh, there's, there's, there's three happening. So Sab is going to be part of our entrepreneur summit, which is going to happen. I don't know. It's going to be fun, which is going to happen actually in, um, in April. So I'm pushing that to April for the entrepreneur summit. But the next one that's happening actually has nothing to do with money. It happened out of like a necessity to to make an impact in a deeper way. So kind of the the, the nonprofit side of my business. Um, this this is where this is coming from. So the pandemic is is impacting uh, young people in a very deep way, especially like our teenagers and our uh, young adults. And like the isolation that they're going through, we're seeing a, a large number of like suicides, a large number of suicide attempts, um, severe depression, so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, as parents, it's difficult for us to navigate what we're feeling, right? And my children are much, much younger. It's difficult for us to navigate what, what we're feeling, but then in, in particular, it's difficult for um, us to even bridge what they're feeling. And so I'm having a, a summit uh, called Isolation Sucks, Helping Parents Learn How to Listen. And I have some therapists lined up. I have some of the top speakers in the world on that speak on uh, bullying and speak on suicide prevention. I have some gratitude people in there. Like I have some incredible people pulled together for this particular event. So we're going to have this conversation, right? And we're going to, as an open conversation, there'll be some things people can watch ahead of time uh, to kind of get some more inf- deeper information. Then we'll have a live Q&A um, with all of the speakers coming together so that they can kind of engage in the conversation. The audience can ask questions, but I just saw a need. Like I had a friend whose son came to him with alarming language and, uh, and I've known this, this kid since he was a baby. <laughs> I've known him since he was little. So to know that he was hurting so deeply, I just felt a need to help in some way. And having the, the audience I have and having like awesome people like you have, like, like having these people in my life, like this, it just made sense to help put something together. So we have Isolation Sucks is coming uh, very soon, and, and that's going to be released in February. We have a Mindset Summit coming up in March, and then we have the Entrepreneurship Summit, which is going to be in April. And that one's going to be some oh fire. God. That is an amazing, honestly, purpose, because I think there's just a lot of work that goes with, you know, creating summits and like the concept and finding people. And really the idea behind isolation sucks is great because this year, well, I keep saying this year, but like it's last year already, right? Last year was an intense year. We're still going on the situation. Like you don't know where, when it's going to stop. And like you mentioned, you know, there's just like a lot of children out there that are missing out on school. They're missing out on, you know, they can't see their friends. They're hanging out with their parents all day, brothers, but they're still cyberbullying and there's all of these situations. So I think those summits are going to be amazing. And I have one last question for you, Arcade, before we go into the rapid fire questions. So my last question to you is as follows. I'm pretty sure you've had an experience where you feel like you're probably the only one to live it at some point. Maybe it was a thought, maybe it was a feeling, maybe it was something that you were going through. So can you please tell us, first of all, what that was? And second of all, what your advice would be to someone who is in the same situation? I think it's the the beginnings. This does bring together a lot of what I talked about. So 2015, Mm -hmm. I got married right? To love my life. And he still loved my life. I adore him. And uh, we like, we had a wonderful beach destination wedding. It was so cool. It was in Jamaica. It was beautiful. Our friends and our family flew out to be with us. In January, we went to Thailand on our honeymoon. And that was incredible. Like so many cool experiences. And we came back pregnant and I was so excited. I was like, this is just like a dream, right? It would be lovely if it had happened a little bit later <laughs> from the honeymoon, but that's okay. 
you know, I was like, we still have a little bit of time to save. Right. So we'll save for the baby. And then like at my 13 week appointment, I found out that I was having twins. And I remember the, the ultrasound technician, her name was Karen. And, um, and I know Karen very well because I saw her a lot after this, <laughs> this particular appointment. She said, are you on like fertility medication? And I said, why would you ask me that? She's like, because there's two. And I was like, oh, <laughs> how crazy. And like my husband was just staring at the screen because it was a big screen up on the, on the wall. And he's just staring at it like in shock. And that was such a euphoric moment. And it lasted for like two minutes. And then she just like kept looking, kept looking, kept looking. And she's like, okay, I got to bring a doctor in to look at something. I'm like, is everything okay? And she said, I, I just want to bring the doctor in. The doctor, then the doctor came in and he started talking about the type of twins. And like immediately I could tell something was wrong. Cause I was like, you, you wouldn't be having this conversation about different types of twins. So I said like, you know, I'm kind of a bossy person a little bit. So I'm like, just tell me what is wrong. Like, tell me what, <laughs> what type of twins I have. And he said, you're going to let me finish. Let me go through it. <laughs> and come to find out I was having monoamniotic monochorionic twins, which are also referred to as mono mono twins. They happen in 1% of all twin pregnancies. It's like hitting lottery. It never happens, never happens. And, uh, a couple of years ago, there was like this picture on Facebook, or you can you can look it up. It was two babies holding hands as they were birthed, right? That's the type of twins I had. Never happens. Um, and so um, I won't get into all the details of what the pregnancy means, but in in along in the, the the long and short of it is that um, to protect your children, there's nothing really they can do to protect your children. You have to go into the hospital at 24 weeks and be constantly monitored, and then uh, the, if they let you, you can uh, if you last. If not, there's not an emergency for delivery. You will deliver between 32 and 34 weeks, depending upon your circumstance. And like, there were so many things that kept happening throughout this pregnancy. It was the most stressful period of my life, most stressful period of my life. And I was like, this is just incredible. Like on top of having this, one of our, one of our twins, you know, had a a cord insertion that was dangerous on top of like all the other things that were wrong. You know, so like we were at risk of losing her and then it just continued. And so it was, it was legitimately the hardest thing I've ever experienced. And I felt so alone because it's such an isolating experience and no one can understand what it is. Like no one, no one could understand what it was to like, feel like every single day you were going to lose the things that, that meant so much to you, even though you never met them. Like I never met them, but they meant the world to me. And I was willing to like be complete tiger mom and do anything that it took to bring them into this world. Right. In fact, I threatened to sue the hospital a few times because I wanted to make sure we had the right care. So there were a lot of conversations (laughs) that were hard, (laughs) but at the end of the day, like that was, that was so hard, but that was also the, the, the catalyst of, of me changing my life. Right. Because it no longer was about me being selfish or me being focused just on myself. It was now us. Like we have these people to take care of, right? Like we have these people who we were, I've, I've suffered for. Like I've done everything to bring you into this world in every way, shape or possible. Like, like I stressed for you for months. Now you're here. I, I have to give you, I have to give you what I can. I have to give you the best life possible. I can't jeopardize your life in any way, shape or form. So that happening, that experience, I do feel like it was like a one in a lifetime experience. Like, like I felt like I was just by myself. And even as I tell people about it, they're like, yeah, I don't know what that is. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was hard. It was hard, sad. But at the end of the day, like my kids are healthy. They're here. They're like amazing. Like, you know, it, it was every moment of it was worth it, but it was definitely like a life changing experience, life-changing. I can only imagine, and I've always wanted to have twins. So having heard that, I'm like, oh my God, should I now worry? Like if I were ever to have twins, like should I be worried that something could happen? So I think it's really amazing, you know, that everything went well, that you had these babies and they're healthy, they're happy and everyone's happy and you're a great big family. 
And I think we've had a very interesting conversation around money and around debt and, you know, around finances and everything. This has been really, really interesting and mind-blowing and eye-opening for me. But I want to end this in a really fun, lighthearted, rapid-fire question so we can even get to know more about your personality. Because honestly, if I'm being truly honest, I think this is my favorite part about the interviews because you start opening up during the questions. But then when we get to like the rapid-fire, it's like I'm hitting you with these random questions and then we can really tell who you are as a person so my personal favorite are you ready i'm ready let's do it okay my mom's favorite question is what person dead or alive would you like to have dinner with if you could maya angelou i actually named my my daughter maya yes (laughs) i love her i love that such a beautiful name okay if you could pick a fruit to be what fruit would you be Mm. Okay, I think I would be, so my favorite fruit is mango, and I feel like it is the, like, most delicious fruit possible, so I would want to be the best fruit, and I would be mango. That makes sense to me. (laughs) I love that. I also love that it kind of aligns with your personality, because I feel like you're very feisty, and mangoes are very unpredictable, right? It's only until you open them that you figure out if they're sweet, if they're, like, tangy, if they're well past due, or if they're still ripe. So I think that definitely fits your personality from what I know from you. I like that. It's a great pick. Coffee or tea? Um, Absolutely tea. So I actually have a cupboard at home that is full of tea from all around the world. It's literally nothing else in that cupboard but tea. So I have a little bit of a problem, a small problem, (laughs) but but it's my favorite thing. Oh my goodness. And there's actually, if ever anyone goes to like Montreal, there is this amazing tea house in Montreal right beside the, the Notre Dame Basilica and they they do tea from uh, Japan from China and it is just absolutely delicious they have snacks and it's such a great ambiance to be looking at the Notre Dame Basilica and to have tea and watch people walk by it's perfect oh my god that sounds like a dream right now what is your favorite movie okay my favorite movie is Fight Club <laughs> Right, and it's been my favorite movie forever. And I, like, I don't know. I feel like every time you watch it, you see something different. And so Mm -hmm. I just, I just love that about it. I think it's like a very cerebral movie, and you just keep absorbing different pieces of it every single time you watch it. I actually have to rewatch it because it's been a couple of years now. Okay, are you more of a magazine or book type of person? Without a doubt, books. I love, love, love reading books. There's, there's actually a room in my library. It's supposed to be a, bed, a room in my a room in my house. It's supposed to be a bedroom, but there's no bed in it. And it just has bookshelves and books in them. And it brings me so much joy. <laughs> like, oh it brings me absolute Amazing. joy. Speaking when my kids get older, they're probably going to want to be in there, like actually have a room. But oh for now, God. it brings yeah. me joy to have my books in there. But I am getting into Audible. Um, I'm finding that you're able, like, to, you're able to absorb so much more, like, from actually listening to the book. So that part is pretty cool. And for so cheap, like, nine ninety nine for a subscription, and you get one book a month. That's not even the price of any of these books. Like, I think I recently got the um, Barack Obama book, A Promise Land, which is amazing. I love Barack's voice, and it's just, like, so calming to hear him speak about it. Um, but I think that book is, like, $30 if you buy it. And with Audible, you just pay nine ninety nine, and you have it there. Did you, so you listened to it already? You listened to the book already? Not all of it. I am, I think, in the first or second chapter, but it's so good. Oh my God. It's so interesting. Like half of the things he talks about, I didn't even know that happened. And I'm like, mind blown. I'm like, this person is so inspiring. My next one's going to be actually his wife's, Michelle Obama. So So I I, I listened to hers, but I haven't listened to his. So his is on my list. I'll listen to it now. Oh my God. Totally get it. Totally, totally get it. You will not regret it. Speaking of, last question for you. And with this, we're going to be closing the interview. Who is your biggest inspiration? Okay, so I think my biggest inspiration is actually Oprah. And my reasoning for her being my biggest inspiration is that she gets the ability to tell people's stories. And and she like has this platform where people can share themselves in an extremely vulnerable, authentic, and real way. And like, I think that I love being a money coach. I love the education side of it, but I also love like sharing people's stories and learning about people and learning where they came from and how they got to where they are, because that's, those are the things that kind of make 
people unique and make you and like have grounded you and have shaped you. And so like learning that about people, it's, it's incredible. And, and so I admire that she has that platform and the ability to do so in such a meaningful way. Yes. Big fan of Oprah as well. She's actually on my vision board for this year. So hopefully eventually one day I'll get to either interview her or be interviewed by her. So stay tuned like you. I'm putting it out to the universe. So who knows when that'll happen, but it's out there. RK, it's been amazing having you on and you have such an incredible story. You know, it's serendipitous that we connected. So excited for the summit and so excited about everything. So if you're out there listening to this and you want to go check RK's Instagram out, it is going to be linked in the description as well as the summit links. I hope you like have a sign up sheet or somewhere because I'm going to be sending people there. They can go and check it out. And if you want to check out my Instagram and look at the lives that I do each week and like the fun posts that I do and catch up with news, go follow me on at producer podcast on Instagram. So again, thank you so much for being on the show, RK. It has been a pleasure and it's been so nice having you on here. Thank you so much, Sab. I had so much fun. Thank you. Peace out, everyone. See you next week.